Good morning. Uh, I heard uh, Pastor Brent say dang this morning. It was thrilling <laughs> to me personally. Uh, bad company corrupts good morals. <laughs> so I'm influencing you, brother. I love it. <laughs> First Peter chapter 2. And uh, we're going to read from verses 21 through 25. And I want to talk a little bit this morning about this idea of the call to faith that each of us have, particularly as Peter articulates it within this Petrine community or the Peter's community. And uh, uh, the challenge that it throws at us uh, and opens us up to. So we read verse 21. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He, Christ, committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. And when he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him, to God, who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might be changed. We might die to sins and live for righteousness for by his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. You know, I wish that the call of faith were always a call to win in life you know, a call to victory. And particularly, I wish it was a call to always being in control. There's something in me that wants to control my life and the people in it. In fact, I would like to control the whole world. (laughs) But the call to faith isn't that. It isn't a call to control. In fact, in a certain way, I mean, well, in a certain way, right? Uh, Faith can be said to always win, uh, to always bring victory, but not in the way that's most immediately what one would call a win, <laughs> because sometimes, you know, you think of things like Jesus in the call to faith in Matthew 10, where he says, anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. This word cross, this image cross, this analogy cross is not a positive one. It means suffering. It means death. And he's saying, unless you're willing to enter suffering, unless you're willing to enter death, you're not worthy of me. And then he goes on, whoever finds his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It's a very challenging idea. The fact that if you're grasping to control your life, you're going to lose it. But if you're willing to lose it for his sake and lose a little bit of the control that you have and are willing to face suffering and even death, that somehow you find your life. Very odd way of saying it. He's basically saying suffering and death must be active in us in order for life to be active in us. It's a call to suffering. It's a call to death. It's not unlike what Jesus said when he said, unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. The seed and the idea of growth has to face a suffering death. And after its death is momentary, but after the death, all of a sudden the 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 potential of life that's within it. The potential of something else is broken out through the death of the seed. 
And so that analogy is used in scripture that, that there's in our own lives with our own control, we're like little seeds, lots of potential, but not really full of life or not really expressed life. And it isn't until we face this suffering and death that something is released that isn't released except we face that. In our reading in Peter, we see this similarly disturbing call to this idea of suffering. And again, in verse 21 of chapter 2, Peter writes, to this you were called. This is your calling. (laughs) Yay. Right? Because Christ suffered for you. I wish that he would have said, so you don't have to. Right? Christ suffered for you, so you don't have to. But that's not what he says. Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps, his steps of suffering. It's a call to suffering. He's not talking about really suffering sickness or hardships in life. I don't, the, the text doesn't bear that out. I mean, certainly the human experience itself affords plenty of that to us. So you will face that stuff. But he's talking about suffering in the context of relating to God, relating to ourselves, relating to others around us. It's relational kind of suffering. In the context of this particular verse we just read, just beforehand, he's talking about suffering in the workplace. And just afterwards, he's talking about suffering in a home. And then in the whole book, he's basically talking about suffering in a culture of people where there's some who have faith and some who don't. And when you're in a culture where some people don't have faith, they don't get you. And there's some suffering that you encounter because they don't get you. And then he's talking about the suffering that we have within ourselves, right? Because there's, there's sinful desire and we've got to move toward God. And that, in other words, trying to get along with yourself is rife with suffering, right? And then he talks about suffering of obedience within the context of the community of faith. In the fifth chapter, he talks about submission and relating to people. Submission is different. It's, it's a difficult kind of thing because it doesn't mean you always agree, but you're moving with and toward someone that sometimes you'd rather move away and run from. So I want to address three areas of suffering that I, I think that we need to embrace as followers of Christ that Paul, or that Peter rather, is highlighting here. But before we do that, let me reference Paul in his, uh, on this point of suffering. In Philippians 3, Paul talks about it, and he says in verse 10, I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I think all of us in here who are followers of Christ want this. But watch what he says. But I also want to know the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Why? So somehow I attain to the resurrection of the dead. The juxtaposition Paul is making is he's saying somehow suffering is attached to resurrection. Somehow moving in Christ's suffering and experiencing death in some level is opening up for resurrection and for life that currently isn't available pre-suffering, pre-death. Again, in Romans 8, he says something similar. And verse 17, now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God. How cool is that? Co-heirs with Christ. Man, we love that. If, indeed, we share in his sufferings, in order that we may share also in his glory. Again, the juxtaposition is that somehow when we experience suffering, it opens us up to glory, which is God's revealed presence in our lives. When glory hits, life gets sweet. And then lastly, Philippians 1 and 29, Paul says, For it has been granted to you on the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, which we all love, but also to suffer for him. Suffering is a big part of the call of faith to us. And the first area of suffering I want to, I want to look at is, 
is in the relationship we have with ourselves. Now, have you noticed how weird you are? I mean, there's something in us, Paul described it. He says, there's a part of me that wants to do good, and there's another part of me that wants to do bad, and it's like I'm weird, it's like I'm schizophrenic. And I've got this war going on inside myself. There's, it, is, it is a tumultuous road to get along with yourself and to learn how to deal with the struggles that within, are within you. Peter said in our text just a couple verses earlier, he says in verse 11 of chapter 2, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world, as we look odd because we're people of faith, to abstain from sinful desires. I mean, it's easy to follow them, but he says, no, no, don't go there. Which war against your soul. There's a war that's going on inside us. This is repeated over and over in the New Testament text, this idea of the struggle internally. And the struggle constitutes a kind of suffering. In fact, Peter, in chapter 4 of this same book, brings it up again, this idea of suffering within yourself and with yourself. He says in chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, again, I want to read, you don't have to, you're free. But that's not what he says. He says, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourself with that same attitude. In other words, arm yourself with the idea, you're going to suffer. Now, the good news is suffering isn't permanent. It's momentary. And there's something that follows it. But still, you have to understand you're going to suffer because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. If you're not done with sin, it's because you haven't suffered. There's no magic oil from Jerusalem that we can bring to you and tap on your head that's going to just make you free. If you're going to walk free in your life from things that have got you bound or attitudes and habituations that you know are not appropriate, you're going to have to suffer a little first. Praise the Lord. That's what he's saying. Then you'll be done. As a result, you'll end up, you, you, you will not live the rest of your earthly life for evil desires, but rather for the will of God. See, this is the kind of suffering Paul was addressing in Romans 8 where he talked about the idea of suffering and glory. He's actually talking about this wrestling of the flesh and the spirit. <laughs> the ancient Jewish way of addressing this uh, carried, uh, and it was carried into the Christian church, the early Christian church, was this notion of two ways. There's a way of life and there's a way of death. And that most of us have been habituated to a way of death. And that if we're going to back out that and begin to habituate into the way of life, we're living and doing living things, we're things that produce life, things that produce fruit that isn't destructive. We're going to have to learn how to pull back from that way of death and engage with the way of life. But that whole kind of process is not an easy process. So we see it uh, caught in texts like Psalm 1, where it says, Blessed is the person who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. He's not in that. This person doesn't live in this path of death. He doesn't stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. But, but this person's delight is in the law of the Lord. That's the path of life. And, and he, he delights in the law of the Lord and on his law. He meditates day and night. And this person ends up being like a tree that's planted by the streams of water. In other words, you can even make it through drought because you can grab water that, that's close by without rain coming. You can survive which yields its fruit in season. You're always fruitful. Your leaf doesn't wither. That's good. And whatever you do benefits. You're a benefit. When you're in the room, things are better. You're like salt. How many of you like salt? I like salt. You know, some places you go, they don't salt stuff. I like salt. I salt my eggs. 
my eggs taste better with salt on it. They just make it better, right? And so, and, and then, and then salt in the ancient world, the way that's the way they used to preserve things. It would prevent rot. So when you're salt, you stop the rot and you make things taste better. That's what you're supposed to be when you come into your job. People ought to go, I just like it when you're here. It just tastes better. And there's less rot. Right? That's what the response should be. Whatever you do, it prospers. Huh? The two ways are explicitly referenced in an early text of Christianity uh, that never made it into the canon, but it's a beautiful text. It's called the Didache. And the Didache begins in chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, it says, there are two ways. One of life one of death. And there's a great difference between the two ways. See, when you are habituated to do things, to go one way, the way of death, and you say, wait a minute, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to pull back from that, but not only just pull back from that, I'm going to go this different way. Honey, you're going to have a war. Internally, there's going to be some suffering. You're going to have some suffering. I mean, to replace the impulse of greed, that's the way of death, and to say, no, I'm not going to be greedy, but in fact, I'm going to be generous. I am telling you, that will not be an easy thing to do. Or if you're habituated that every time someone offends you, you retaliate and you feel good about it. It's just you're standing up for yourself. And so you insult me, baby, watch out, because i got a short time, right? You, you do stuff at me and I'll threaten you. You make me suffer, you'll pay. You just wait, right? If that's the way you're used, if that's you're habituated to that, and all of a sudden you realize that in the, that's the path of death and God's calling you to a path of life, what does the path of life look like? It looks like forgiveness. What the heck is that? Right? I mean, forgiveness, I don't know to, about you, but forgiveness feels an awful lot like suicide because you're not defending yourself. You're not taking up your own deal. You're not making sure that person pays for what they did to you. And on some level, it feels like all you're doing is opening up the door to be abused again and again and again. Hmm? The impulse to be gluttonous and to overindulge. I mean, you try to dislodge that, it is not easily dislodged. It will feel murderous. It will feel cross-like. It will make you feel, it'll breed suffering. You'll feel like you're being robbed of something. But Peter's message to us is to say, look at, you know, if you move toward temperance, you know, even though you'll, you'll experience the suffering, it'll be momentary and you'll be done with this path of death. Because what he's saying is suffering and death must be active in our lives in order for life to be active in us as believers. Now, we're not suggesting in this that we're supposed to be real legalistic about ourselves. I mean, if you continually pick the path of death, all that means is that you're an idiot. And, and God loves idiots. He does. he does. I know this because I am, I be one. I mean, I am a professional sinner. You know, and to rehabituate my life has, you know, I've been doing this for a long time. And, and thank God I've seen rehabituation, but it has not been easy. And what I've discovered about God is he, is, he has more grace to forgive than you have effort to sin. And all you need to do is keep coming back to him. First John says, says it this way. He says, as if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you. I remember one time when I was just a kid, I was, I was sitting there, I think, God, I'm such an idiot. And I hate myself for being so, you know, sinful. I mean, I would... Whoever I was with, I was more like them, right? So I, when I get around people that weren't very godly, I'd be ungodly. I hated myself for it. I remember telling God, I'm so faithful to sin. And I 
hurt in my heart. I'm more faithful than you are. I'm more faithful to forgive you than your faithfulness. And you will never beat me in grace. And, and so I love the idea that, I mean, Jesus told us if we offend each other 70 times 7, that's 409 times a day. That's a lot of offending. And if we offend each other 409 times a day, which is a ton of it, which means it's habituated, he says, you forgive each other. If he does that for one another, that we're supposed to do that to one another, how much more does he do that to us? You're never going to out-sin God's grace, right? But that being said, that, that, that doesn't mean that God doesn't care about how you live. And uh, th- th- this, that he wants to help us. His grace empowers us. This is a beautiful text in Psalm 147. It says, God takes no pleasure in the strength of a horse, or he's not looking for human might. He's not trying to get you to make yourself live right and walk in the path of life. You know, he, he, what he wants from you is to delight in him, to fear him, which means you're acknowledging him. And, and he says he, he delights in people who put their hope in his unfailing love. We're not supposed to be work righteousness oriented. We're saved by grace. It's an act of God. But on the other hand, nor are we supposed to think that because it's all God and because he's full of grace that I can do whatever I want to, it doesn't matter. That's not right. I mean, some are confused by the idea of sola gratia, you know, the, 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 by grace alone, or sola fide, by faith alone, right, that the reformers touted. And they say, well, it's all grace and it's all faith. I've actually had people tell me, I don't really have to do anything. We don't have to do anything. I mean, Jesus has done it all. And so I can live, we can't even sin. I've had people tell me to my face that Christians cannot sin. That it's all covered by grace, so you can just, it's greasy grace. So you can do whatever you want to do, slide around, don't have to be committed to doing right, you know, that kind of thing. I, I think it's, it's not a good thing. <laughs> the reformed formula was this. We are justified by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. What does that mean? In other words, salvific faith, when you become, you experience God's saving action in your life, what happens is that it affects obedience in you. Because you're forgiven, we love because he first loved. And so the reaction from our heart is obedience. We're not rejecting moral constraint. Because we're forgiving, we're embracing moral constraint. So again, the issue is, is that we are called and God wants us to embrace this second way and wrestling through that is a wrestling of suffering and death, but the end result is a new life. The second kind of suffering that we must embrace as followers of Jesus is the suffering of other people. God said that we're supposed to, the command is love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your strength. The second is what? Love your neighbors yourself. I mean, it's basically we love God, but also we're called to love people. I, my favorite adage about this business of loving other people is the more I get to know uh, some people, the better I like my dog. And so when, when Peter writes in, in verse 21 of chapter 2, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow his steps. Remember, it's sandwiched between trouble in the marketplace Trouble with bosses, trouble, and then he sandwiches in the other end, uh, on the other side in chapter three, with trouble in the home between men and women, and the fighting that can happen and the abuses that can happen. Now, thankfully, we don't live in a world where you can be beat. In that world, you could get beat up. Your master could beat you. If you were the husband, you could beat your wife. 
mean, that's the way their world was. Now, thankfully, that's not true today, right? Now, if somebody tries to beat you, you can dial 911 in the name of Jesus and put them in jail and then come and talk to them about the Lord. <laughs> right? You don't have to get beat, right? But I'm telling you, some people, the way that they can reduce you to feeling like nothing can sometimes be worse than a physical beating. Rejection, assumption, not giving you credit, somehow presuming on you, making demands on you, silence when they should be speaking, speaking when they should be silent. And there can be, there's lots of very cruel people in the marketplace and there's lots of very cruel people in homes. And sometimes their cruelty is worse than physical. And I, when I was a teenager and I, 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 I came in upstairs with one of my sisters and they were, she was pretty depressed. I remember that. And I went up to see, she was kind of, had disappeared for a while and I went upstairs to see her. When I walked in the room, she's over in, on, by her desk and she has a razor blade in her hand and she's just lightly cutting her skin. She isn't committing suicide. She's just lightly cutting the skin so just a little bit of blood shows up. And I said, what are you doing? And she looked at me with kind of dead eyes. She said, I just, I just want to feel something. She said, I don't feel anything. I'm just somehow, I just, I just want to feel something. Those of you that know people that have been in dark, dark places, you know that sometimes physical pain feels like a gift. So the call to us when we're dealing with people that are evil like this is Jesus tells us how to, or he tells us how Jesus responds. He tells us that we're to respond by following Jesus' example. We're to follow his steps and then he iterates his steps. Verse 22, Jesus committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. In other words, he didn't do anything that deserved the rejection. He didn't do anything that deserved insult. He didn't do anything that deserved suffering. And yet here they come. When they hurled their insults at him, the one who had committed no sin, the one who had no deceit in his mouth, they're insulting him. And instead of reacting at them and insulting back, which seems so very natural to me, he did not retaliate. And when he suffered, man, when somebody makes me suffer, I want to say, I want to threaten. You keep that up and watch. Right? There's a threat that wants to come out of me. But instead of naturally threatening when he suffered. He says he suffered, but he made no threats. And this is the path he's calling us that we're to take in our relationships that seem off. He said, instead, Jesus entrusted himself to God who judges justly. He was saying he was connecting with his father, knowing that somehow the father was bigger than the situation. See, when God calls us to follow Jesus' steps, it's not so that we just get beat up on or we just get abused. It's that we can connect with God in a way that makes us bigger than what's going on. When Jesus said, if somebody slaps you on the face, turn the other cheek, why could he say that? We know the healer. When Jesus said, if somebody asks you for your shirt, give them your cloak also. Why? Because we know the provider. If, if Jesus said, when somebody asks you to walk one mile, go two. Why? Because we know the strengthener. In other words, what he's saying is, you, you're, not, you're not just being abused for abuse's sake. You are connected with the living God, and he makes up for the stupid that's around you. And you can afford this. It's like those of you that are parents. You get the horror of raising little children. You know, when they're two years old and three years old, I mean, they're pretty and everything, those little blessings, but sometimes they're not very good, right? And I remember times when I felt the abuse as a parent, going to Perkins, 
restaurant in Wisconsin, and we were in this tiny little town. It was the best restaurant in town. There was only three, and uh, about the best restaurant in town. I remember sitting there, and my favorite thing in the whole world at the time in my life were that those salads from Perkins. I had a little bit of Thousand Island, a little bit of French, and those little croutons. I love those croutons. I love those croutons. And 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 my, you know, I'd be talking with Gail, and I had these three little boys that just their little petri dish hands would reach over into my salad and grab my croutons and pop them in their mouths, and I'd think, what? I wanted to take a fork and stab them in their chubby little hands and say, what are you doing taking my croutons, right? But see, what I would do instead of doing that, I would accept the abuse. And I would say, I am the parent. They are the child. I am the parent. They are the child. And somehow by realizing who I was, it helped me deal with the abuse. What Peter is saying to us is when you understand, when you walk into the marketplace and they're attacking you, or you walk into the home and you're not understood, and by the very fact that you're living right, it's like Cain and Abel, you get stones thrown at you, right? Cain destroying Abel with a rock, that people throw rocks at you. That if you understand that the reason you can stand and take it is because you're connected with God. And by virtue of the fact you're connected with him, you can say, I'm the believer, they're not. I'm the believer, they're not. I can afford this abuse. So he's not calling us to be suffering because we're weak. He's calling us to suffer precisely because we're not. We're entrusted to a living God who will get involved. And so we see this as as he continues here. He said he entrusts himself to him who judges rightly. The scheme is very simple. The scheme is very simple. It's basically you live well. You realize that people will reject you when you live well. They'll throw stones at you. And, but you're not supposed to throw the stones back. Do you throw the stones back? When you're insulted? When you suffer? Do you throw the stones back? He says, don't throw the stones back. Instead, trust God. Because when you trust God, you'll open the way for God to get involved in a natural relationship. And then he talks about it, that when God gets involved, something changes. What changes? He's saying that the very people that are throwing the stones will be affected by your looking to God instead of reacting. That when you look to God instead of reacting, it opens the door for God to touch their lives and to cause them to stop being stone throwers. In other words, your life becomes an intercession for transformation. And so he says that Jesus, instead he entrusted himself to him who judges rightly. Verse 24, he himself bore our sins, our insults, our suffering in his body on the tree. Why? So that we could be changed. The ones insulting, the ones causing suffering, that we could be changed, that we might die to the suffering, die to the insults, and live rightly for by his wounds, by the fact that he took our insults and took our suffering and not retaliated and instead looked to God. By his wounds, he opened the doors so we can be healed. What if some of the people in your life will never be healed unless you're willing to bear the wounds and to trust God? And then he says, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you've returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. This is the very thing Paul says in Romans 12. He says, you with weird people, don't take your own revenge. You want to. But follow Christ. Don't take your own revenge. Instead, leave room for God. And he says that if your enemy is hungry, don't say you deserve it. Feed him. If your enemy's thirsty, 
Give them a drink, for in so doing, you're bringing these coals to bear. The coals were symbolic of purging of evil. It's the same as in Isaiah 6 when Isaiah says, my lips are unclean. And the Bible says the angel grabbed a tong and picked up a coal and purged the uncleanness from Isaiah's lip with the hot coal. Paul says that when you give to the people that are your enemies, it's like you're putting coals on them, coals that purge away the thing that's making them your enemy. You're bearing into your body their sins following Christ's example and opening the door for God to touch them. It's an intercessory expression. This is why Paul says in the last of that text in Romans 12, do not be overcome by evil. Some of you face evil every day on your job. People that are mean, people that are that discount you, people that are just difficult to be around and you don't know what to do. The scripture says, don't, you don't have to be overcome by that evil, but overcome the evil with Good, kindness, love, generosity. And it's so weird to do that when everything in you wants to scream it's not fair or it's wrong. We see this lived out in practicality in Acts chapter 7 when Stephen, who is this uh, follower of Christ, he's talking to his Jerusalem buds, telling them about the story of Jesus, and they do not like it. They get really hacked, and they grab him, they drag, drag him out of the city, and they start taking stones and throwing them at him. Stephen doesn't throw the stones back. Instead, he looks and trusts himself to God. He looks up to heaven and the heavens open and the scripture says he sees God and he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He's burying their sin. He's letting them get away with it. And as he does that, he, the scripture says that he dies and they take the cloak, the, the very garment that protects Stephen, and they laid it at this guy's feet, this murderous guy named Saul of Tarsus. Two chapters later, Saul of Tarsus is going to murder more Christians. And as he's on his way to Damascus, a light appears. He falls to the ground and he is just stunned. He's blinded and he says, what's going on? And, and Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? See, when Stephen didn't throw the stone back, they were persecuting Jesus. If Stephen had thrown the stones back, it would have been all about Stephen in that crowd. Do you throw the stones back? And Saul goes, who are you? And he says, I'm Jesus. And Saul is converted. If, if God did that sovereignly, why doesn't he just do that to everybody? But what if the reason God did that? I mean, I think the impulse of Scripture, the teaching of Scripture is to suggest that because of what Stephen did, it opened the way for God to get him, to transform him to take the evil out of him. And what if our very lives, the people, there's some people in our lives that the gospel isn't just about us being persuasive or getting our apologetics down or putting it in a little, uh, you know, track that's nicely cartooned and handed to people. That that, what if that's not the gospel? What if that might be ancillary to the gospel? But what if the real gospel are people like you and I living in a real world facing real people, and somehow as they approach us, they go, what is up with you? They throw stones at us. We don't throw them back. And somehow through our own suffering, it transforms a way for them to be changed. What if you matter? 
Stephen lived well. It got him stoned. He doesn't. I don't mean literally stoned. Well, you know. <laughs> There's so many levels of that. Anyway, <laughs> he didn't throw the, throw the stones back. He trusted God. He opened the, it opened the door for God to get involved. Bottom line is this is difficult to get along with people. But it is your call. Some of you think, well, if I just worked with Christians, life would be so much easier. First of all, that's not true because a lot of Christians are just like the devil, but be that as it may. What if God trusts you so much he's precisely called you to be in places that are difficult because he loves those people in those places? And what if he wants you to be his intercessory tool of grace? Tough, yeah. Suffering, yeah. But what if glory is attached to that? Resurrection is attached to that. What if one of the reasons we don't have more resurrection is because we just think that us coming alive in Christ is about us coming to church and just finding our gifts and expressing our gifts and people thinking we're wonderful and amazing and we're gifted? What if there's nothing about that? What if it's your life matters? The people you know matter. Then the third way of suffering that we're called to is just simply being a part of the body of Christ, (laughs) the church. (laughs) The call to unity with each other, it's not an easy enterprise, right? I mean, the stakes are huge. Jesus is praying in John 17. My prayer is not for them alone, but I pray for those who will believe in me through their message. He's praying for us, those that have believed after. That's us. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. This is the John 17 prayer for unity. There's many theologians that now believe this is really the eschatological question. In other words, what will bring Jesus back is not what's going on in Jerusalem right now. What will bring Jesus back is, is the church moving toward each other? Because for centuries, 1,056 years, 54 years, we're one church. We fragment in that year, 1,056, I think it is. We fragment, and we're two churches, Eastern and Western. That goes on for another 500 years. And then in the Reformation, we based our unity not on the fact we're part of each other, We base the unity on what we agree on. And all of a sudden, we begin to fragment like crazy. Today, there are 42,000 denominations. That's not including independent churches. Denominations. We We define ourselves over schismatic issues. Apparently, they didn't. Jesus said that they may be one Father just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us that the world may believe that you have sent me. The currency that's at risk here is somehow our unity convinces people that Jesus is real. I have given them the glory you gave me. Glory is the stuff that makes us have the energy to do what's right. And he says, I gave them your glory. Why? That they may be one as we are one. Why do we need glory? Because it's hard to be one. Paul said in Philippians 2, Paul says, if you've had any encouragement in Christ, if you have any fellowship with the Holy Spirit, gather all that spiritual strength and put one another ahead of each other and be concerned with the issues that are in each other's lives. Why does he say that? Because it takes a lot of energy to move toward each other. And then he said, I and them, you and me, may they be brought into complete unity to let the world know you have sent me. In other words, we make Jesus famous when we move toward each other and you have loved them even as you have loved me. Bottom line is, it's hard to do this. 
In fact, Jesus said it this way. He promised them. He said, offense will come. That's usually a promise most of us don't stand on. We don't wake up in the morning and morning prayer and say, Lord, you said offense will come. And I'm trusting you today that offense will indeed come. We don't do that. <laughs> Even though it's a promise. <laughs> we don't have time to go to these primary texts for this, but the New Testament says that the greatest sign of being worldly and fleshly as a Christian is how independent are you? In other words, do you see the church as an option? When you think of church, is it, is it just an option in your spirituality? I can't tell you how many times I hear people say, I just don't like the church. I just, you know, my spirituality is just, you know, between me and God. They don't understand how radically different that is from the whole notion of the Christian trajectory. I mean, many in the early church thought that separating yourself from other people, other believers, and was really placing yourself in the seat of Satan. Many of them believe that, that, that the kind of schism that we see in the church today was the actual blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That's what they believed. It was the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Now, were they right? I mean, I don't know. But the point is they had a very profound, profound view of connection that somehow we have lost in the modern world. Ignatius, one of the apostolic fathers, wrote about the 115 CE. He says, therefore, whoever does not meet with the congregation thereby demonstrates his arrogance and has separated himself, for it is written, God opposes the arrogant. I mean, we are Americans, and I'm glad I'm an American, but we are freaking individualists. It is part of our American mythology, but it is absolutely anti-Christian. I mean, the evidence in Christianity that it is a corporate expression as much as a private expression is permeating, overwhelming in both the biblical and the historical records. I mean, from the very beginning, people were welcomed into communities of faith. That's how they came to faith. They, when they believed the gospel, they weren't just encouraged to believe privately, independently. They were encouraged to become part of the community of faith. That's how they got entered in. The entrance event that brought people into the church was not the sinner's prayer. The entrance event was the corporate event of baptism. And the thing that's strange about baptism is you can't do it yourself. You can't baptize yourself. You can't say in the name of the Father. It doesn't work. And the meal of eternal life, Eucharist. I mean, they got, this is what they gathered about to somehow participate in, in Christ's presence in this thing. They, they, it wasn't something you could do by yourself. I mean, I mean I'm mean, i part of a tradition that there are people in my tradition that I grew up in that actually believe that, that, that uh, Eucharist and communion were supposed to be a private devotional event. We would do it in their private devotional time. There is no support for that in the Scripture. There's no support for that in history except post-Reformation. No, read 1 Corinthians 11. There's no suggestion that you and I have any right to gather and by ourselves or to come just by ourselves, participate in that meal. This is a corporate meal. Paul says it's a meal of the body. Precisely because we gather, is this possible? That he's present with us and obvious with us when two or three are gathered together that he's not when I'm by myself. He's always present with us when we're by ourselves. But he's not always obvious. He's obvious when we gather to worship. He becomes more obvious when we listen to the preaching and we encounter grace. He becomes more obvious when we come to the sacrament and we trust him to be present here. Somehow he sticks out more. That somehow this, this 
whole idea of this corporateness and this communal activity is something that God calls us to. Because in the New Testament, the whole idea of unity is critical to their thinking. And their unity wasn't <laughs> like an aggregated unity. In other words, like, uh, like a bunch of trees standing next to each other. And we're a forest, the church being the forest, but we're all individual trees. That's not the kind of unity that it's talking about. That's aggregated unity, where we're all individual, but we're all kind of standing next to each other. We kind of look like each other. We're all trees. So somehow we're together, we're unity. That's the way most Protestants think of unity. That's not the way the scriptures define it or the church has ever defined it, nor was it even family. I mean, family's important because we come towards each other even when we're weird. I mean, I'm going to Thanksgiving dinner, Gail and I up in Wisconsin, and my siblings, this is problematic. I'm, I'm just going to just let you know. It, it's, it, we're doing it because we're family, and we'll make it civil as much as possible. There will be outbreaks, but it'll be fine because we're all, you know, all of my siblings, we are literally on different philosophical, theological uh, you know, universes. We're part of whole different places, but we still come together because we're family. We're supposed to be more than family. The analogy used for the church is family in some ways, but it's more than family. The analogy is the body. And what's odd about being, I mean, if I'm part of the family, if I don't show up at Thanksgiving, I'm still part of the family. But if I'm part of the body, if I don't stay connected to the body, I die. There's no choice. This isn't an option. My connectedness to other people of faith is absolutely critical for me to be alive. And if I get cut off, I'm dead. And, or I'm just creepy. We watched, Gail and I watched a show the other night where this, uh, this um, uh, kidnapper, kidnapper kidnapped this person and, and they didn't think it was serious so they cut the ear off of the person that they kidnapped and they sent it to the, to the person they were trying to give them to give them money and they opened up this little box and there's, a, there's an ear! And when you see an ear in a box, it's, I mean, it's like creepy, weird. Nobody wants to see an ear in a box. But it isn't like we're offended by ears. It isn't like you walk up to people and go, oh, he's got an ear. Oh, that person's got two of them. You don't do that. You know, I was going to bring a cow tongue, but I couldn't find one. I called a place and they didn't have it. But I was going to bring it to you just because I wanted to bring a cow tongue to church. One of these days I'm going to bring a cow tongue to church. And you know what you'll say? I'd even try to pass it around. Some of you would not touch it. Why? Because it's a cow tongue. But if I brought a cow in here, none of you would go, it's got a tongue. Oh my God, it's got a tongue. Ah! You wouldn't freak out at the cow tongue if it's in a cow. Because if it's contextualized, it's not weird. It's not creepy. You saw a severed hand and it's moving. That's the stuff of scary movies, right? So here's the deal. If you, what do you think of the church? Is it a forest for you to be a tree? Is it kind of a family thing, a clubby kind of thing? Or do you look at it as the body? That you think, if I don't get connected, it doesn't matter which one it is. You just have to find a place to get connected. Because there's something in the connection that brings life. If you don't get connected, you're going to die. It is not an option. This church is not a commodity that you get to pick for your spirituality if you find the right one, when you find the right one. It's not a commodity. If you think it is, you're thinking wrongly. Separated from it, you're dying, creepy, and best, a scary movie. This business, let's move toward the Eucharist here for just a moment. I want to read you one more text and we're done. 
this business of the Eucharist. I am so delighted that we as a community make this a practice. We habituate our lives to this moment. I love the table. I cultivate a hunger for the table. Um, listen to Jesus on this. I mean, what, what basically the deal is, is that the human race died according to the narrative that we have in Genesis because of a meal from the fruit of a tree. The human race is alienated from God. It was in a garden with a tree and the fruit of the tree. And God designed that another garden would appear. The garden where he died. He died in a garden on a tree with a different fruit. And this meal that celebrates that is a meal of life. So the meal brought us to death. God so lovingly provided a meal that brings us to life. It nourishes us. It's not the only way grace comes, but it is a way grace comes. And somehow, Jesus, when he's describing this, and listen to Jesus, as a Protestant, for years when I read this verse, it just, it seemed odd to me. I didn't understand it. And in truth be told, read this chapter in John 6. People were scandalized by Jesus' words here. So much so that after he got done saying it, the whole crowd abandoned him. This is where he looks at his disciples and said, you guys are going to leave me too? And Peter goes, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. We're not leaving. But this was a scandalous idea. And when I used to hear these words, I'm telling you, Jesus sounded weird to me. It was like Jesus became an adult in a Charlie Brown cartoon. I didn't understand him. Listen to him. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me, feeds on me, will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. At the very least, I mean, what if I, what if I found this thing and I said, guys, I was over in Israel and I went into this cave and, and we proven it. This, this is manna. This is the manna they had in the wilderness. We found it. There's actual manna that we found in the wilderness and it's been sustained. How many of you would think, whoa, manna? Manna from the wilderness? We're going to eat it? You'd go, manna from the wilderness? Eat it? See, we're more taken by that idea than what Jesus said when he says, this is my body. We've been so paled by guys like Zwingli and Zwingli had, you know, some good points to make and Zwingli was, was dealing with some problems that we don't deal with now. But he basically said that this was a memorial and the, the phrase he used in Latin was signa nuda. In other words, it was just a prop for faith, a sort of pale sign. It didn't really mean anything because what he was fighting against in his day. And that is reverberated into our lives. So it's, not, it's, like, it's like a flannel board with Jesus, a kid's prop. Not much of anything. And so I think we need to recover the miracle of it. 
That's what I love about this community. Is we don't understand it. I mean, we don't know what's really going on. I mean, that's not a cheap excuse. I mean, we understand what the church has said historically. And the church has always tried to figure it out. Don't misunderstand me. And they're using the science of the day, which were the philosophies of the day. And they had ideas from, uh, that they got from uh, um, Plato. And they had ideas that they got from Aristotle. And they have ideas that they got from different ages. And they're trying to figure out what is actually happening here. And we can articulate all those ideas. So it isn't like we're saying stupidly we don't know. It's that literally we don't know. But we do know this. That somehow as we pray in these next few moments, that God is going to be creative at this table. We do know that. We do know that somehow this isn't the only place where grace is dispensed, but grace will be dispensed through this, just like when we preach, just like when we sing, grace is dispensed. There is grace dispensed in this moment. And somehow we see him. We see him in this meal. That's what in Luke 24, when Jesus is walking right along with them, they don't recognize him. And then when he sits down with them at the end, this is after the resurrection, at Emmaus, and he breaks the bread, that Eucharistic moment, he breaks the bread and their eyes were open and they recognized him. And the church has always said, we recognize, it's not that he's not present with us all the time, he is, but we recognize him in this moment. You've all seen uh, tapestries. You have that tapestry, fill it up there. A tapestry has all of these colors in the whole thing. There's not more red thread than purple thread. There's not more yellow thread than orange thread. It's all there. The blue thread, it's all there. The reason you see kind of the yellow in the center and the reason you see kind of the purple in the background is because as the, as the weaves are going through, the creator let those colors rise to the surface in those particular spaces. But all of the colors are there in complete equality. See, what's happening is God is always present in your life. But in some places, he rises to be seen and recognized. Times when we come together, together. Times when we come to this table, he rises to be recognized. We see him here in a way like we've never seen him. This is what we're after. We need this table. I need this table. This is not an option for Edwin. I commit to the table. That's why I come to this place. I commit to it more than I commit to hearing preaching, even though I love preaching because it's my job. <laughs> That's not true. I really do love it. <laughs> we better stand. What's my point today? Suffering and death must be active in us in order for life to be active in us. How are you doing? How are you suffering with yourself? Are you? Are you just giving way to the habituation of death? How are you doing with others? Are you throwing stones back? Are you willing to suffer to see people transformed? And how are you doing with the body of Christ? Does this matter to you? Is this critical to you? If it isn't, there's something wrong with your faith. Because moving toward each other is not easy, and you will suffer by virtue of the decision to make the church a part of your life. And others, not just... Sanctuary, you're not saying that. The church, the people of the church, God's voice in his community, you must be a part of it. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services at 5 p.m. on Saturday, 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. on Sundays. 
And if you would like more information on who we are and what we're about here at Sanctuary or to give online, please visit our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com or you can download our mobile app from the App Store or Google Play. We hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week.